This is Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. It was certainly not your usual weekday morning. I had never administered an injection of any kind, and there I was about to deliver a syringe full of vitamins into the neck of an adult female white rhino named Margaret. To be this close to such a magnificent creature is a life-changing experience, one that I will never forget. I had the privilege of being invited to be part of the rhino experience offered by Founders Lodge here in the Eastern Cape. I was also in the company of an extraordinary man. To watch Rob Yordy around animals is to see someone in his natural element. This middle-aged American with the customary golf shirt and sneakers may not seem like the typical conservationist, but to see him work with that rhino that day left no one in doubt that here was a man who knew what he was doing. Rob Yordy is the executive director of the SeaWorld and Bush Gardens Conservation Fund and responsible for monitoring how these funds are used on initiatives like this throughout the world. With current projects in places like Uganda and Zimbabwe, he helps to manage the non-profit work of the company and monitors that the funding is used effectively and transparently. But it's not just rhinos that the fund supports. During his stay, uh, we also uh, visited Quebec's Sankov facility, which cares for our local seabird population. It's another worthy cause that's supported by Rob and the SeaWorld Fund. Rob started his career at Marineland of the Pacific in California as an animal care staff member working with a variety of marine animals, including killer whales, walruses, penguins, dolphins and sharks. He then became a part of the zoological team that opened SeaWorld's San Antonio branch, where he worked for 16 years in the aviculture department. Rob spent the next four years at Bush Gardens Williamsburg as zoological manager before overseeing the zoological plans for SeaWorld's Dubai expansion. He is currently back in the Middle East overseeing the creation of SeaWorld's latest marine life theme park in Abu Dhabi. While Rob's work for the fund has allowed him the opportunity to visit projects around the world, it is here in South Africa and specifically the Eastern Cape where he is happiest. It is certainly encouraging to hear his hope for the future and how, with the engagement of governments and big corporations, there may yet still be a future for our endangered species. Enjoy. Rob, it's great to have you back in, uh, in the Eastern Cape, back in South Africa. What does this area mean to you? So Dean, this has is, is been a very special place to me since my first visit many years ago um, through Adrian Gardner and the team at Mantis. Uh, but to come and see what has been done in this region, uh, changing it from the farmland, hearing the stories and, and getting out and seeing what the Eastern Cape really is and really was in many cases, but also to see what can be done. You know, I, one of the things that fascinates me is the massive population of bottlenose dolphins off the coast. You know, in the bay itself, it's just incredible. I've been out on the water a lot, um, watching what you know the the potential this region has as well for growth. Again, you've got a very, very old marine park called Bay World that that hopefully will be rehabbed and turned into something that will be, you know, another crown jewel for this region. But my biggest focus has always been getting out, getting out. Uh, Adrian has got me out to so many different reserves to see what his vision was and what the you know what the Eastern Cape has become for a point for people to come visit and I think it's one of those areas that is really underserved by word of mouth I think there's so much more that is here that people actually realize and when you go out and drive around and you go out and stop in the reserves and talk to the people the people really make it and the people here are just genuine they are so incredibly giving and willing to have just stories and when you get a chance to talk to people one-on-one -on -one and hear how long they've been here and what they've done and what they've seen, 
and, and how things have changed, uh, that really is something that is, is very, very important. Well, I've had the um, pleasure of um, spending some time with you over the last few days, and um, I don't think I've met anyone as passionate about conservation as yourself. What, if you're going to define the, this word conservation that we see banded around quite often, you know, what does it mean to you? And, and explain your role in this in this quite a corporate world that you operate in. You know, you, you represent a, a sea world, Bush Gardens. We know anybody who's ever visited America will know that it's quite a big entity. I mean, it's obviously tourism. I should imagine the dollar is the driving force. How, do, how does your role play in the, this whole idea of conservation and, and what's brought you to Africa? So my role as executive director for the SeaWorld and Bush Gardens Conservation Fund is to help manage the nonprofit work that the SeaWorld and Bush Gardens parks do. This is looking at projects all over the world. Since 2003, we've supported uh, over $19.5 million in projects on every continent, uh, whether it's spending time with, with dolphins or wolves in the U.S., penguins in Antarctica, uh, doing rescue work in Australia, uh, sloths and armadillos in South America. Uh, but I will tell you that Africa itself has been something that has been very special to me. There's so many animals that I've been lucky enough to work with in my career that I get to come out and help influence conservation on here uh, in Africa, whether it's spending time in the Eastern Cape, which I love being here, uh, but also having projects in Uganda, having projects in Zimbabwe, projects in Rwanda, looking at different projects around Africa that we can help and these are the the boots on the ground project conservation to me simply if we had to dial it down is caring we really care about the natural world we really care about the animals that should be here finding a way for for the humans that are here and humans are not going away so we have to find the balance we have to find a way where where humans can can thrive and be successful and all the animals can thrive and be successful and there's not what we call human-animal conflict. That's where two things come together. Poaching is one of them, where you have syndicates and, and very nefarious people that want the money out of the animal parts, and so they will get to the townships and the local people and say, hey, we'll pay you a little bit of money, go kill that animal for us and bring us its horn. Um, where the conservationists are going, you can't do that. And the balance is finding a way to make sure that the, the native people know that there's a better alternative than doing that. And then you take the conflict away, and that's when everybody can, can, for lack of a better term, live harmoniously. I had the privilege yesterday of doing something that was probably a life-changing life experience, and I saw you in your element, if I may say. We were part of a medical procedure um, with, a, with, a, with a family of rhino. Um, there was DNA testing there, but for that to happen, of course, we had to, we had to sedate the mother and the, and the, and the baby rhino. But I saw you really in your element. I mean, it was quite incredible. I've never, I've never imagined the weight of a, of a female white rhino. But yesterday, having been part of the team to try and get this, the, the, get this uh, magnificent creature back on its feet, but I saw you really doing what you love best, which is getting your hands dirty and helping the animal um, at that point. I mean, tell us more about some of your experiences over the years with that kind of work. Uh, I will tell you that I, in the 38 years that I've been in the, the zoo industry, I've never forgotten where I came from. Doing the work with the animals itself is the core of what I do. I'm lucky enough to have uh, influence and be able to help with conservation work, with uh, zoological design, with uh, opening new facilities, um, but also conservation education, talking to people around the world, making sure that they know 
that this is important and why I think it's important and why I hope they will think this is important. You know, the procedures you saw yesterday, we took DNA testing off of the younger uh, rhino uh, while doing his physical. That's a program that the SeaWorld and Bush Gardens Conservation Fund has supported through Wilderness Foundation Africa. We have over 200 black rhinos that have DNA testing for the Eastern Cape. Um, we have a database of over 140 white rhinos, now 141 with Ranger. Um, and then we also put a tracking collar on his mom, on Margaret, on her ankle. So we also have GPS tracking of her. The sad state with rhinos is if you have to have if you have rhinos anywhere in Africa, you have to have somebody watching them. You have to have an anti-poaching unit. You have to have GPS tracking because of the challenge with poaching. You have to just manage these animals correctly. Uh, Dr. Emily and Candace and the team uh, from Will Fold's team were phenomenal, uh, but it really is just it's doing the work. Well, I mean, yes, we all know that spreadsheets and business models and finance and everything else is truly important because you have to have that as a foundation to do conservation. You have to have funding. You have to have people sitting in offices that support doing the work, but it's the work itself. And that is where I, I truly am happiest uh, to be able to do that. Uh, I've been lucky to travel travel the world with looking at conservation. One of my, my favorite projects is studying a giant armadillo in Brazil. It's a uh, species that nobody had studied before. Most people think of an armadillo of about three or four or five pounds. Uh, the armadillos in Brazil can get up to 100 pounds, the size of a Labrador retriever. Nobody knew anything about them. We had a, a researcher, Arnaud Debes, who stepped up a number of years ago and, and talked to our, our president of our conservation fund at that time and presented what he wanted to do. Brad Andrews, our president, came to back to me and said, Rob, he goes, I have a new project. You're going to want to fund it, and you're going to want to do it. And he presented it to me, and I found a way to do both. I've been down and worked with Arno a number of times. But just being out in the middle of the Pantanal in Brazil and seeing all of the native wildlife and know that it's, it's pretty much untouched with the exception of the large farms out there, but being able to, to track the animals, to trap them so we can do physical safely on them, put GPS tracking in and let them go and then track these animals for a long time. Uh, they did name one after me and he taught them something that they did not know. At 100 pounds, he swam across the river that was six feet deep. And they did not think that those guys, that the big heavy armadillos could swim and he made it across the river and kept on going. And so it, it just, everything we learn, we learn all the time. And that's one thing I've been very fortunate in my career is I've never been able to stop learning. There's always something new. There's always a new species. There's always something. Being out in Yossi Reserve um, a, a couple days ago, I didn't know that there was a parrot-beaked tortoise. And we didn't find any. Uh, but, you know, I had to look that up and find out some new species that I hadn't heard about. Um, so that's that that zest for learning, that wanting to continue to learn and continue to be around the best people is something that has kept my career going for a very long time. So you've heard it here first. We've got Robbie Audi, the armadillo. So if you're ever in Brazil, <laughs> we, need to, we need to look out for that magnificent creature. I'm not suggesting there's a correlation between his size and yours, Rob. That's something else. <laughs> He's a lot smaller. <laughs> um, can you just explain to people the, the role of a conservation fund such as the one that you lead and how it came about? Because I believe it was through visitors to the park in America wanting to help and how you could how they could make a practical difference with, with the with the limited funds that we've all got of course. But how did you turn that into this great program that you're running now? 
and that was you were 100 percent right so back in 2003 our, our chief zoological officer brad andrews presented to august bush who was the owner of anheuser bush companies who owned the parks that our guests continue to come to us they see our rescue programs they see um, the research work that we're doing uh, and we would just budget for that we would have a line item in a budget and we would just pay all you know whatever we were supporting but our guests would come up to us and say hey we want to help can we give you money to help that animal can we give you help money to help that program but being a publicly traded for-profit company we couldn't take that and you could see we could all see probably the the somewhat disappointment in the guests that they really wanted to and there wasn't a way to do it we would have to shuffle them off to another ngo that had nothing to do with us and say well go on their website and you can help them and brad andrews came back and said we need to create a nonprofit that works on conservation itself that is is the company's nonprofit and we can give our guests that opportunity um, we fortunately had Virginia Bush um, who was the daughter of August Bush came in and was our first president of the fund helped grow it dramatically helped get it started between uh, Virginia and Brad they really they got the program going but it gave our guests the opportunity to be involved not just to say they did something but Throughout our parks, we update people on our projects. We have staff that have gone that go out and talk to our guests. We have we have a website. We have all kinds of different things that, that inform people of your money, whether it was your dollar, $5, $10, $100, whatever you've given is going to this. One of the things that we're most proud of at the SeaWorld Bush Gardens Conservation Fund is that 100% of what gets donated goes back in the field. The company, SeaWorld itself, pays all the admin costs for all of us that actually run the fund all of the all of the paper all of the printings everything literally whatever a guest gives that's in the park goes back out into the field to one of the projects uh, we, and we again we have projects on every continent and we've got just some of the most incredible people that we get to support um, across the world that are truly making a difference and it comes down to education education about what's going on, education about why you're doing this, education about why these animals should be here. Uh, there's, it just, it, it, seeing, seeing people in Brazil, we talked to some guests uh, just recently um, up at Founders Lodge from Brazil that didn't even know there was an uh, armadillo that size in their own country. And, you know, so it's, you see that and then you create ambassadors and they want to go and talk. So that has been the, the role of the SeaWorld and Bush Gardens Conservation Fund is to give our guests an opportunity to work with us. The, the company donates money, our guests donate money, we have a fund that we can work with and then we review projects throughout the year. And also for awareness. We want our guests to know what's going on in the, in the world and not just, you know, we, we want them to have the most amazing time in our parks and see our animals and learn. We want them truly to learn. And that's if we have people that are learning and understanding and believing in conservation, then I truly think we've done our job. And I think the role that you play, um, I've been in your company for the past few days and you truly inspire your passion. You just want to go out there and uh, make a positive difference. And we can all do so in our little ways, of course. Um, one of the examples that you, you use, because I'm very much into practical examples and, and engaging with the, uh, with the local population. It's all very well talking about conservation at, a, at, a, at an ideological level, but you have to make the difference on the ground. Now here in uh, Nelson Mandela Bay, we're fortunate enough every, every year to get the, the visit of magnificent southern right whales. 
Can you just tell us a little bit about the project you've, you're, you're working on or have helped with in North America that's helping their cousin, the North Atlantic uh, right whale, um, which is quite quite magnificent, really. So you've got a, a, a super healthy population of southern right whales there off the bay that come up and visit from Antarctica, and they, they are really doing well. Their cousins off the Atlantic coast of the U.S., are just the opposite, sadly. They are, we're around a population of around 400 at this point, uh, critically endangered. And what has happened is it's been a combination of entanglement from fishing pots, um, crab and lobster pots, and boat strikes in different regions. We can address some of the challenges with boat strikes because we can move shipping lanes and, and change speeds and stuff. But the, the entanglements are something that we've been historically challenged on how we can change that. This is where the whales will swim along. They will catch one of the, the anchor ropes. The, you, know, you have a buoy and then you have a rope down to the, the trap and they will catch it in their mouth. They will catch it wrapped around their fins and then they keep swimming on. Well, if it's in the mouth, it will keep them from feeding and then will slowly starve to death. If it's around a peck fin, it will eventually cut off the circulation and rot off the fin. But this takes months to a year to happen. It's very sad. Over the last three years, the SeaWorld and Bush Gardens Conservation Fund has partnered with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Woods Hole came to us with a proposal that they wanted, they needed funding to, um, to develop a non-invasive way of crab and lobster fishing. And what they have developed with our funding, and it's been a, it's been almost a million dollars over three years to just to this project, is to develop a pot that is GPS tracked that doesn't have a rope, that has a that has a mechanism with a balloon that's attached to the trap at the bottom. The fisherman will come along, GPS find the track, push a button on his phone. The balloon will inflate at the bottom, bring the trap crap up to the surface. They will empty it, rebate it, repack the balloon with the weight, drop it back down, go to the next one. Uh, it's something that's revolutionary. We have a number of pots already out in, in, in use, but it has to be a culture change. This is 200 plus years of, of operating this way. We want the fishermen to realize that this is a better way. What the next step is, now that we've got the technology, now we have to make it more affordable. Now we have to find a way to make it where it fits within their budget so you go to the monetary side as well because you have to look at this. This is their livelihood. So we have to work with them and make this all positive. One of the things that was really very exciting is recently there was a storm that came through and one of the fishermen that was using this technology, one of his pots went seven miles. He had lost it. and. If, if that was a roped pot, the rope would eventually just take it off and he'd never find it and he would have lost his pot, lost all his gear. He was able to use the GPS to go find the pot seven miles away. So from a, a monetary standpoint, he's saving equipment by using this technology. Uh, so it's something that we're very proud of to see where Woods Hole Oceanographic has gotten to and what our funding has been able to do and we feel this is going to make a difference and, and help some of these great whales down the line. Amazing, amazing stuff. And as you said, it's about it's about working with that community because these these guys are making a living out of this. They have done for for generations. So it's it's not coming in and preaching. It's about educating. It's working. It's incentivizing, isn't it? Can you give us an example more locally of where you've done that? Where 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 these projects have worked with local communities to actually empower them, which benefits us all, of course, because it's our environment. Well, one of my favorite ones is an example here in Africa, up in Uganda, with a group called the New Nature Foundation. They had created this very simple wooden press that anybody can make. 
that teaching the, the local communities to make it, it would take all of their detritus, banana peels, shells, leftovers, anything like that, and compact it into a cake, solid cake that they would use to burn for, for firewood. The whole focus on that was to make it easy enough to make firewood that the locals would not go into the national forest to illegally harvest endangered species of wood. So you're giving them an opportunity to do something. And, and the New Nature Foundation did not make the presses for people. They went in and showed the, the, the villages how to make the presses. So we were funding them to go in and showing them how to do this. The, the really fun result of that, besides just the people having firewood for their homes and for cooking and not having to go in the forest, is they actually made more than they could use on a daily basis. So now they've got cakes to barter. So they would go to other villages and other townships. They would barter for different supplies. And you're eventually creating a culture that doesn't want to go into the national forest, that knows that they can do it where they are, which, you know, interestingly enough, gives you more family time because you're not having to spread out and go do this. You're not coming across, you're not basically breaking the law and having to deal with avoiding rangers and things like that to sneak into a national forest. You're actually creating something that the community can be proud of and be able to trade for goods that you really want. So one of those that a very simple idea turned into something that is culture changing. And ultimately, conservation is truly about changing a culture. As you mentioned with the fishermen, you know, generations and generations of doing it the same way. People know what they know. We have to come in and be able to, to, to help them, to teach them new things, but teach them with a way of saying, we want to be able to preserve what you're doing, but we also want to protect the animals and the plants and the habitat. So to do that, we want to give you opportunities to learn this. You, know, you can never tell anybody what to do. I think that's, that's where a challenge with a number of conservationists get into, or conservation groups, is they come in and they know what needs to be done. And they're going to go in and tell that, that region, here's what you have to do to save this animal. It's got to be a bigger picture. Because you're, you, you can't save the animal unless you protect the culture, yeah. unless you protect the people. And you can do that and get them to want to do that. Then you've won. And then the animals have won. But you're not going to. You're not going to save one thing at the expense of another. Yeah. I think that's the success of your approach. I think I, I've seen it. You engage with people set, such as Adrian Gardner, who's, of course, here in the tourism um, industry here in the Eastern Cape, but he's got a passion for um, conservation, for the environment. He can see the bigger picture, as it were. But you come in, you engage with people like Adrian. In, in terms of sustainability, in terms of the business model, we witnessed it, as I said, over the past few days. I saw the amazement in the visitors' eyes. These are tourists to our country and they're engaging their hands-on, they're actually doing something practical. And the way that you explained it, as, a, as I say, it comes through, um, through your passion, but certainly through education. It's not preaching, it's al almost showing by example, isn't it? it? It really is, it's coaching people. You, the folks that came in that we had, the group, one group from the UK, one group from Brazil, which was personally really fun for me to tell lots of stories about Brazil, since I spent a lot of time there doing projects, but it really is getting them to understand what conservation is and why we do this and how we do this. And it, it getting the chance to show them and have them participate because then they become ambassadors. 
they are the ones that are going to go out and now tell the story for us. I, I've always wanted to be able to talk to everybody in the world, and I know physically I can't. But if we can, if I can cre help create ambassadors that go tell the story, that go let people know why we should do this and what the options are to be able to do things. You know, we we spent you know you're spending some time talking about some really tough subjects. You're talking to these folks about rhino poaching and what actually happens, and letting them know when the poachers attack the rhinos and what goes on and how much they have to take out and how devastating it is. So their their hearts are a bit broken, but then you're also showing them hope. You're showing them that there are people that want to help and there are ways to help, and. You, it's it's contributing. It's understanding that those folks, as guests of Acor, that they use their points to come do this, so they could be a part of this, can now go back and not only tell their friends and tell their family members and everything else, but they let the big company know. So now you're bringing in the the industry itself to understand. You know, Adrian Gardner was such a visionary to know that. He can marry tourism with making sure conservation is there. One of my favorite things from my first trip here, and I've gone a few times in Cape Town, Adrian had me stop in Cape Town and, and stay at the Last Word Constantia, one of his properties there. Very fancy, very elegant hotel. But their conservation message is a percentage of their, their take goes to the conservation of the Table Mountain ghost frog. Little tiny clear frog that only lives on Table Mountain, Last Word Constantia is at the base of Table Mountain. But it's, it's thinking of that, that that much of a tourism piece, that much of something that you would never think of conservation being a part of, has a, has a role to play and a willing role. Not because they have to, but because they want to. And that's where when you find out that conservation and industry and everybody can work together, that's when everybody wins. Yeah, and that's that's what inspired me. I mean, obviously the, rhin the plight of the rhino is, is widely known and it's almost like the... Uh, the flag bearer for the conservation movement, but as you said, I mean the plight of the of a, of a frog on a frog, sorry, on Table Mountain is just just as important in the grand scheme of things. T today, we, I've got the privilege of coming with you to Sandcob here in the Bay. Uh, anyone who knows that wonderful organisation will know that they rescue seabirds and do a lot of work in terms of marine life within the Bay. How did your relationship with them come about? And uh, tell me a little bit about their work. So the, the work that Sandcob does is just incredible, and they have their main facility um, over on the Western Cape, uh, outside of Cape Town, and then they have a satellite facility here in Port Elizabeth uh, that they've taken over the last few years. Their focus is, is marine birds, uh, penguins mainly, but also cormorants, gannets, anything else that somebody will bring into them, the rescue and rehab and return, and they're also helping oversee colonies, working with the local governments to protect the colonies of birds themselves. The SeaWorld and Bush Gardens Conservation Fund relationship started many years ago. There was an oil spill here off the, the Cape from the, uh, the MV Treasure, massive oil spill right around Robben Island, right around a huge colony of penguins. And the call came out where not only did they need funding, which we could support, but they needed expertise. The, in the SeaWorld parks, we have worked with penguins for over 50 years. So we have some really, really talented people that have learned throughout the years on how to do this. So we took two of our top penguin experts and sent them down for weeks to help with the rescue effort, to help with de-oiling, to help with feeding, to help with monitoring the birds. Uh, it was one of the most successful uh, mass you know, events when it comes to rescuing animals, when it comes to sea animals that have ever been seen because not only did SeaWorld send people, but the Association of Zoos and Aquariums sent people. 
and other zoos and the other good zoos in the U.S. sent people down. So we really mobilized to help the penguins, which ultimately helps South Africa, helps the Cape, helps the people around that. That and then we have funded projects throughout the the last number of years with Sankop. It's always fun for me to go back and visit because I can see where our funds go and see how the work is doing. Uh, we have responded on a consistent basis to bolstering chick pro um, programs for African penguins. Uh, it was, I think, four years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a dam that um, dried up and an entire flock of flamingos left and left all their chicks. And Sand Cobb stepped in, even though flamingos weren't kind of their forte, they stepped in and said, we will take these. And we sent people and money down to help with that emergency, one of our animal crisis grants. And then also recently there was a, um, a, a, a number of adults that left a cormorant colony for one of the endangered species of cormorants and they took the chicks in and needed funding so we got funding for that as well looking to support the good people on the ground and that's really what the SeaWorld and Bush Gardens Conservation Fund does is we want to support the people boots on the ground that are doing great work and then we can come in both with funding and with intangible support like people or conversations veterinary consult consultations anything that we can help with we will be a part of Super. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to uh, going down and visiting with you, but please come back soon, won't you? I mean, this is a special part of the world, as you know. You've discovered it. Um, and and for, for the rest of, rest of South Africa and certainly uh, uh, the world, we've got so much going for us in the Eastern Cape, haven't we? Uh, it's inc it, it, the Eastern Cape is just incredible. It's a special place to me. I've come back many times and I continue to come back and, and work with great people like Adrian Gardner, Andrew Muir and everybody that's invested in the Eastern Cape and also try to bring people, try to convince people when I go back to become an ambassador for the Eastern Cape. Even though I'm in the States and I spend time in Abu Dhabi, I am an ambassador for the Eastern Cape and at some place I will continue to come back for years to come and I will encourage as many people as possible to visit. Super, you're more than welcome. Let's go and see some penguins. That sounds like a great day. So we're at Sankob now and uh, I've been living in Port Elizabeth now for probably the last six months and uh, I'd heard of Sankob um, just down the down the coast from where I am in Humewood and it's this incredible facility. We've come here with Rob Yordy, one of the funders of this uh, facility uh, and it's absolutely magnificent. I mean who doesn't love a penguin? We've seen cute little penguins uh, being uh, rehabilitated um, so I'm here with the centre manager, CJ. Uh, tell me about what you do here and uh, some of the challenges you have. Yeah, so thanks. Uh, yeah, so my name's CJ. So I'm the centre manager at Sankob Mabecha. So we, as a non-profit organisation, our main focus is catered towards the conservation of marine ecosystems, with specific focus on seabirds. So our main objective is to re well, reverse the decline of seabird populations that we're currently seeing. And we do this by rescuing, rehabilitating and releasing any injured, ill, abandoned or oil penguins or seabirds that we find in Algoa Bay. Um, our main challenge is obviously there's been a drastic decline in penguin populations throughout their natural range. I think the total population has declined by over 70% in the last 30 years. So that is a major concern as a conservation organization. So we're trying to identify the threats and trying to working, we're trying to work very closely together with other organisations such as Rob and SeaWorld, um, just to try and understand understand these threats and implement mitigation measures to try and re reverse this decline that we're seeing, and try and ensure that the penguins are still there for our future generations. I mean, I asked the question, CJ. I mean, I played out devil's advocate. I mean, why does it matter that we, uh, you know, that we look at the population of penguins? And you gave me quite an interesting answer. Can you just relay that? 
So the biggest thing with penguins is they are indicator species for the overall health of marine ecosystems. So if your penguin populations are decreasing, that obviously means that there's a bigger factor happening in our seas. So yeah, if seabirds are declining, it means either the underwater system is not well, or we know our fish supplies are in drastic, well, a lot lower than they used to be. Um, so yeah, so we've got to see them as an indicator species of the overall health of our marine life and ecosystems. And you talked about particular challenges we face here in Nelson Mandela Bay over the last two or three years. What, what are they in particular? So there's a host of factors that have contributed or that we have identified that can contribute to the decline. So it's a variety of other, the massive lack of fish. So their normal prey of sardines and pilchards has seen a massive decline in their feeding ranges around their breeding colonies. Um, there is obviously ship-to-ship -ship bunkering, there's pollution, there's climate change. Oh, and then also the shipping traffic in Algoa Bay has increased. Recent publication has shown that noise and vibrations also impacts penguin populations. So all of these have a contributing factor in why the penguin populations are decreasing. And bunkering, what does that refer to? So bunkering is mainly when ships transfer fuel not on, not they don't come into sight to transfer fuel. So you have a big ship that transfers fuel to another tender and then they refuel ships out at sea. So obviously that's an increased risk because your oil spill, the chances of an oil spill happening increases in the bay. It seems to be again as humans as we, uh, as, as our population grows, as we're trying to look for profit, bunkering is a result of probably looking for profit margins. These ships don't pay you know, harbour fees so therefore they stay out in, a, in the port and that's affecting our environment and as we can see the bird life in, in this area which we've, uh, we've been proud for, for generations is being affected now as we're speaking. So this is the is, are, we, are we in crisis at the moment? Well, I'd say it's, it's not looking good, but there is hope. So as organizations such as Sankrob, we partner with a lot of other government bodies, the Department of Forestry and Fisheries, we partner with Sandparks in Algoa Bay, and a lot of like-minded organizations as well. We also have strategic meetings with bunkering operations, as well as big corporates that are invested in fuel, just to try and come up with solutions on how to mitigate these threats that are facing our penguins. So hopefully we can find a middle ground and we can ensure the safety of the penguins for the long run. So the kind of funding that Rob Yordi, um, you know, the SeaWorld, Bushworld Gardens Conservation Fund brings in, um, I'm assuming you've got other bodies that fund you here. Uh, uh, without their help, I mean, would we, would we uh, would be struggling? I mean, I've seen the incredible work you've done around here. I mean, I've walked around. I mean, this looks like a, a penguin hospital to the, anyone on the outside. Um, the, the penguins themselves are the greatest ambassadors because, I mean, everybody loves penguins. I mean, they're incredible creatures. But I can see how you've got volunteers here, of course. You've got an incredible energy. You've got a staff here that are dedicated to this place. But without that funding, could you exist? No. So being a non-profit organization, we are fully dependent on donor funding. So we're very reliant on other financial contributions or in-kind contributions. And all of these pretty much allows us to do the work we do. So yeah, so without them, we, yeah, it'll be a, very, a big challenge. And what can we do as South Africans? What can the locals do here to help you? I mean, uh, what, what kind of things do you need and how can we get in touch with you? So ideally, so you can Google Sankop. You'll get to our website and you'll we base down Marine Drive in the Cape Receive Conservancy. So the biggest thing is come volunteer. We're always looking for volunteers to help us. There's a lot of work to do in a seabird hospital. Um, as well as if you have any donations or if you'd like to adopt a penguin, please get hold of us. And all the contributions that we do get goes in towards the operational costs of this facility.
No, it's fantastic work you do here, and uh, and I, I wish you the best. I'm certainly going to become an ambassador of this, and, and I think it's for us to, to spread the word, because we look at that beautiful ocean in the bay all around South Africa, and you talked about the challenges. This isn't just a, an Eastern Cape problem. This is an issue with increased sea traffic, of course fishing and uh, everybody's got their interest in in uh, keeping keeping not only the planet but certainly our marine life uh, healthy um, for, so for me you answered it uh, something is a penguin colony it is linked to everything else mm. the health of our environment and uh, it's all about education isn't it and i know you're very keen to get uh, schools and young people in here to to share that with them yes definitely i think promoting awareness to our younger generation just to create awareness of what challenge we do face, what species are under threat. I think that's vital to change the mindset of how important marine ecosystems are in not only our life, but generally in communities, in generally the economy of South Africa. Yeah, definitely. No, but thank you so much for your time this morning and best of luck. And I'll certainly be coming again. I'm going to bring my, my little one down and uh, I've fallen in love with some of your penguins here already. I mean, who wouldn't? But thanks for your time. Great. Thank you so much. That was Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. For more podcasts, visit algoafm.co.za.